Welcome to Further Reading, Craft, Creativity, and the Writing Life, a podcast from the University of King's College MFA program. On today's show, we talk to Euphemia Fentetti. Euphemia is a writer and professor whose work delves into often difficult emotional territory using forthright language, a recognizable and familiar voice, and humor. Her writing work has bridged fiction, nonfiction, and playwriting, and has appeared in multiple volumes, including Love Me True, Exploring Voice, and Body and Soul. Her first book, A Recipe for Disaster and Other Unlikely Tales of Love, was a runner-up for the 2013 Danuta Glebe Literary Award and a winner of the 2014 F.G. Brassani Prize. Euphemia's memoir, My Father, Fortune Tellers and Me, was released in 2019 by Mother Tongue Publishing. Today, Euphemia joins us to discuss the process of turning life into art via memoir, thinking like an editor, and bringing creative practice to the classroom. Welcome, Euphemia. It's so great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Jillian. I'm really excited about this. Well, let's get right into it and talk about how you came to be a writer. Uh, tell us all about your entry into the field. Uh, that's a great question. So I think, uh, you know, I, my trajectory as a writer is not that different from a lot of people who may have um, spent some time in their teen, year, teen years writing angst-ridden poetry, um, you know, exploring, exploring sort of your feelings through writing, that kind of thing. But uh, I do remember my earliest experience with it is being in a classroom and it was grade three and we were given, you know, at that time we used these um, big red pencils and a sheet of full scap and uh, we were asked to write something. And it's the only time that I wasn't incredibly anxious in a classroom and I focused my attention. And I, um, wrote, uh, I, I wrote all the way down the, pace, uh, the, the page of full scap and also on the other side. And then uh, I, I remember using like an experience that I'd had with my cousin and turning it into a story. Um, and th so that was probably the very first time I remember just writing something and having this sense of like, um, this really was calming and um, something that I really enjoyed doing and I enjoyed uh, the experience and the teacher even sort of uh, called on me to read my story, that kind of thing. And then um, when I was a teenager, I had the opportunity to take a writing class, which I think is really valuable for um, young, you know, for adolescents to experience that opportunity to learn in that in, uh, creative environment. And I took a playwriting class and uh, since then, th that was sort of the major entry I had into writing was playwriting. And I would do everything I could. I, um, I would do everything I could to get writing experience. So I, I would uh, buy myself spots in the Fringe Festival and produce plays or co-produce plays. Um, I wrote a column for an Italian Canadian language newspaper. I was their admin assistant, but I begged them to let me write a column. Um, so uh, I, I wrote a column for um, the English um, ESL Teachers of Ontario. So I used to do everything I could just to get an opportunity to write with a built-in deadline. It's not an ideal way to um, maybe develop as a writer because I wasn't, a lot of that stuff came with no pay or low pay. Um, but for me, it was all about just, um, I spent, I think I had a very long apprenticeship with the craft of writing and it's still something that I do where I take workshops and I um, enjoy listening to panels and stuff because it's just a lifelong learning experience, the, being a writer. Mm -hmm. And I always liken it to, um, you know, the Beatles, how they played in like Hamburg and, and Liverpool, like 300 concerts a year, you know, but we didn't know about them back then. And that's why they're good, right? It's because right, you're right. doing it over and over again in this sort of exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that uh, I know I work really well with a built-in deadline. Uh, so for years, I took classes. I just took whatever class I could afford to take um, and just kept trying to build on the experience of trying to learn something. And I take a lot of that information into teaching as well, because I think about what what I didn't really understand at that time and what you sort of need to break down to make like a young writer understand, because that 
that place where your um, desire to be good really exceeds your ability and you need to sort of like keep at it and keep at it and it's more about tenacity but you think it's about talent um and that's sort of you have to just keep going it's almost like um you can't be in it for the short sprint you're in it for the marathon and sometimes you take a break and you drink the water and you think i'm out this time i can't make it you know um but it's just that that was the um that's what I kept sort of telling myself. It's not what I felt when I was in my twenties or thirties. I kept feeling so frustrated that I was, you know, constantly sort of just um, producing myself or getting some co-production, but just like, it was just always at this one level. And I felt like I couldn't break through to the other side. And I don't even know what I meant by that, but I guess whatever your idea of success is and you hold that in your head, but it was just, um, you know, I saw that in, uh, because I worked in playwriting, I saw that in theater as well, like take every opportunity, jump in, say yes, um, you know, while you're also looking after yourself and not burning yourself out, but learn as much as you possibly can. Um, get the experience, work with as many editors as you can, uh, learn, you know, who are the people that you can work with and who are the people that maybe your, your styles or um, um ways of working don't mesh so that you can just keep sort of pursuing the craft of it. I um, When I'm working with young students, I always direct them to that Neil Gaiman uh, commencement speech that he has where he talks about working in the arts and he says, you know, you need to have three things and it's being good, being on time and being kind. And he says, you can succeed with two of these three things, but um, you have to, if you're not kind, if you're not easy to work with or um, someone that people like to work with, then you better be good and you better make sure you're on time. You have to have two out of those three things. And that always feels like that's achievable, I think. You know, if I'm going to be late with a deadline, can I be incredibly kind and can I be um, good? Can I make sure that I've written something really good so that nobody's wasting time with me? Something like that. So. Wow, that's great. And I love that you're thinking from the perspective of a younger student when you're going into your teaching, because that benefits students so much, but it also kind of puts you in this constant position of both learning and then sharing that knowledge as you right. go along. Right. Yeah. I think I just remember being so frustrated by my experience in school. Um, and I didn't come from people that had opportunities in education. You know, my father only went to grade five and my mother to grade three. So it was already a big deal to get into post-secondary um, school and and I felt like a misfit. I felt um, like I was frequently being asked to jump through hoops. Sometimes those hoops were set on fire and I felt like a show dog. And I thought I couldn't see the um, practicality of some of the stuff that I was being asked to do. And I think that that's, that's changing a lot in education. But back then, you know, there was sort of this really static, I was in a very static classroom. Um, people, I was being lectured at. It was very dry. It was very boring. I wasn't taking in much information. I wasn't learning. Mm -hmm. And then you have to the go way out. that I learn. Right. And you have to go out into the world and put that into practice. And it seems yes. impossible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I'm, I'm hype, maybe hyper aware of it. I'm aware that mm -hmm. there's, um, you need to keep repeating things and you need to kind of show things and, um, and you need to sort of demonstrate how something can be done, you know, and give them multiple examples. And it doesn't click until it clicks. But when it does, it's that wonderful moment of a student sort of saying, oh, I see it. I get it. So, you know, I'm usually returning their assignments with comments like be more specific. This is too vague. Be more specific, too vague. And then we actually do writing tips like avoiding vague pronouns or um, breaking cliches, because as a young writer, or a really like, you know, you're 18, you're using cliches and you somehow think you, that you've tapped into some incredible wisdom using this cliche. You think that you've managed to like say something that's profound and you're not recognizing because of the stage that you're at that the cliche is tired and it doesn't mean anything and it actually, or it means the worst possible thing, which is that you're being lazy as a writer, but you don't know that. So I kind of get them to like play with language that way and it just reminds me of, um, you know, when I just felt like the, the that there was a formula. Like if I could just figure out the formula for how to do mm -hmm. this, 
And if someone could just give me those tools and it was really, you know, at the time it was show up with something already written and then we're going to take it apart in a workshop um, Mm. and then go home and make it better. And I, it right. just was absurd. Like I paid for that <laughs> education, you know. <laughs> like, like, I was, yeah. I can't believe it. <laughs> clearly, it's, clearly, it's still bothering me. <laughs> I think we all have a little bit of trauma from that experience. Right. <laughs> Deep down. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So how did you come to write your memoir? You've been, you were working in all these other fields in playwriting. You did stand up, you um, had written fiction, and then you came to write nonfiction in the form of your memoir. So how did that come about? And, and what were some of the, I guess, instigators and obstacles to getting that going, both within yourself and, and externally? That's a great question again, Jillian. So I think the it came about through playwriting again. So I had written a one-woman show uh, years ago for The Fringe, and I really enjoyed that experience. Um, it was acted by other people, and then I was in the process of writing a second one-person show, and uh, we had a family crisis. My father had a mental health crisis again, and I thought, I can't focus. I can't think. So I... Um, decided to write about that experience of what it was like to have two mentally ill immigrant parents and uh, to be battling this sort of like archaic um, medieval belief system and the evil eye and uh, what caused mental illness while also trying to navigate the Canadian um, healthcare system and the judgment that comes from everywhere about mental health. And so I wrote it as this one person show about this experience of Um, also dealing with my mother's psychosis through her um, sort of treatment-resistant schizophrenia and also the fact that she unfortunately also had been abusive. So I was really stressed because I was worried about, um, you know, maybe um, propelling these really negative stereotypes about um, people with mental illnesses. And I I remember sort of... um, worrying about it a lot, but also sticking my foot down and saying like, this is the combination of factors that we know is really dangerous. Someone who's treatment resistant or the medication is um, not working and they have a history of being violent and aggressive. So these are all the makings of a perfect storm and we need to pay attention to that. It's happening in lots of families and lots of people need support that they're not getting. Um, children are growing up in these environments that are then going to impact their physical and mental well-being for the rest of their lives. So um, I performed it as a play for two years, I think. Uh, I started it off in the Fringe Festival, and then I kept uh, getting asked to do it for um, these uh, organizations like the Canadian Mental Health Association or the Mood Disorders Association or the Schizophrenia Society of Canada at conferences. And you know, I would, I would do it and then I would go home and sort of face plant into a bowl of Haagen-Dazs and be like, okay, got through it. And, um, you know, as a writer, I always uh, fantasized about having a book, you know, like a, it was wonderful to do playwriting. It was wonderful to write like here and there and get like little publication credits, but, you know, the big sort of um, jaw-dropping saliva that drooling moment is that I want that book, you know, because it was something that was a tactile thing from when I was a kid, how much I escaped through books and how much I loved books. So um, I started trying to turn the one woman show into a memoir. And some of the obstacles for me were, so I, you know, this is over a long period of time, like over a decade and a half at least Mm -hmm. i had written about my parents in a multi-character play then i did it as a single like a solo play i did it as a short story um that got published i did i've done various versions of trying to maybe like work through this material almost like i'm performing an exorcism on myself and um i i went to the writer's studio and worked on it there but i wasn't really you know i started um it was almost too big for me to work on. So I started working on essays and that was helping me sort of that breakthrough. And around that time I was reading more creative nonfiction, reading essay writers like David Sedaris and Sarah Vowell and David Rakoff. So um, it started to happen a little more organically that the memoir uh, was a possibility. 
then some of the obstacles for me were that um, I'd been working with this material personally, like as a human being trying to process it for so long um, in some kind of healthy way, like with a therapist and stuff, that some of it started to feel, um, for lack of a better word, like flat, like it had no charge. And then I would sit down to work on it and I would feel sad or depressed. And I think I'm sometimes even get like an emotional reaction, like crying. And I think that, um, you know, there's these myths about creative nonfiction. Uh, and one of the biggest one is that if you're feeling the emotion or if you're like churning up some, if you're working on something that's got like a difficult, it's trauma, it's a, an experience of violence or abuse, that's going to churn up some emotions in you. And that only makes sense to me. Like you're not a cyborg and you're not a robot. You would have to feel something. So often what happens is just the feeling percolating or popping up would sort of um, make a writer stop and make them think maybe about, the, or it made me stop and it made me think, well, I must be, you know, I'm an amateur. I shouldn't be feeling anything. I should just get this done. Um, and then after a while, I wasn't feeling a lot because the story wasn't over. Like I continued to have to deal with my mother's um, severe psychosis and getting calls from the police. And I was continuing to deal with my dad being an anxious person. And, and I just felt like, you know, it was a lot. And uh, when I was working on the, I, I also went to grad school to try to work on it. And I, I felt like, you know, I, I completed a thesis, but it felt very flat to me. Um, and what I was noticing was that you know, I would rather feel something than feel nothing because feeling numb just felt like I was in a dangerous territory. And so um, at some point I was looking at, I was reading an essay by someone else that used the tarot structure. And I thought this, uh, you know, it started sort of like the spidey sense tingling moment where I thought, you know, this is something that I probably don't want to reveal to people. Like I, I did mention the, the medieval approach and the evil eye and the, you know, they believed in demonic possession or witchcraft more than they believed in psychosis and medication. But I hadn't really delved into like my own like um, superstitions or my own, like the fact that I'd had a tarot deck since I was 16 and sometimes turned to it too frequently for <laughs> advice um, or just for some kind of like intuitive check-in with myself. And that's where I felt that sort of um, charge of this is something I don't think I want to reveal. And then I knew that was the path to go on. Like that was the structure that I needed was the structure of the um, major arcana in the tarot, the, the structure of the fool's journey. Because I felt like I wanted my life to be a hero's journey. I wanted to um, vanquish all the obstacles and the demons and the things that had confronted me and I didn't feel like I was doing that kind of a job uh, or that well, uh, that good of a job at accomplishing that. But if I looked at it from the perspective of the fool's journey, you know, this person who sort of, it, it starts, um, you're sort of ignorant and then you just expand your awareness and by the end of it, you're able to take in everything that's happened. And maybe it isn't, it's not this like, um, it's not trauma porn and it's not inspire porn. It's just acceptance. Like, where do we get to that place of accepting that you're going to be dealing with certain things that have impacted your life from birth? And could I, could I write that kind of story? So with students, I usually tell them, you know, for me, I had to think about what's the thing that I don't want to reveal. Why don't I want to reveal it? Can I follow that spark for other people, if that's too much to think about, I usually say, where's your curiosity? Like, what are you curious about? Are you curious about how your, you know, how your parents got married? Um, my parents had this arranged marriage and I was curious about how my father was more of a feminist than my mother and my mother was intensely misogynist. So where can I follow that curiosity and how am I gonna reveal that to the readers? So um, the obstacle was just like working with this intense material and feeling like, how do I tell this in a way that doesn't um, cause secondary trauma for a reader, is interesting enough for a reader, has a structure that works and isn't like, you know, flatlining on the page because I'm, I've been trying to process this story and figure out how to make sort of a narrative from that chaos for a long time. Wow. <laughs> like, yeah, sorry, that's a long answer. <laughs> 
No, but but fascinating because like in reading it myself, I felt like you had this incredible not only self-awareness, but awareness of everybody around you's um, like motivations and internal conflicts and 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 then this ability to kind of like step back and and examine it from a more distanced perspective so I thought you know like either you have a really good therapist (laughs) or you've (laughs) just done some (laughs) some real solid thinking about this and and I was just so impressed with you know the way you you let us into your world and your childhood and then the way you pull back that that way with with that kind of wisdom um, so it's fascinating to hear you describe the process. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It just, it really was like years of trying to work on it and feeling like the the story didn't have much of a charge and trying to figure out, you know, cause when you're working with memoir, you're curating all these moments. And then once the structure um, showed up, I was like, ah, I, I get it. This really, you know, in some ways the question, I guess um, what I didn't realize until I was well into working on this memoir is that usually if you have a question at the core of the piece that you're writing, that's going to propel um, you in a direction. So I kept thinking, you know, for years when I was working on it, I was confronted by all those insecurities that people working in creative nonfiction have, like why bother? Who cares? Um, I had, you know, this, the publishers would sort of say, you need to, you know, you need to be somebody to have a memoir out. And I think it's, it's, um, that's kind of an old perspective, you know, now memoirs are written by people who are just experiencing whatever. And as long as they're telling us their story in a way that we can appreciate, we can all read it. Um, so it took some time to realize that for me, the, um, the craft of it was going to be in having to reveal the thing that I didn't want to reveal. And that this, the, the question at the core of my memoir for me, even if other uh, readers didn't see it was, is everything predetermined? Is, is this fate or how much can you control your life? Is there, what's fate and what's um, free will in terms of, I come from people who are just dedicated to fate. You cannot change your fate. And I really bristle at that idea. Like, I'm like, no, you actually, you don't have to stay in this terrible marriage, arranged marriage. You can change the direction of your life. There are obstacles, there are systemic barriers, there are a whole bunch of things that are going to make it difficult. But the idea that this is what's handed to you and you have to stay with that was something I inherited. And then I needed to sort of work through that in the um, memoir for myself. Wow, fascinating. So then, you know, let's just going back to the, the sort of resistance you encountered from, say, publishers, like, how did that start to change once you had um, figured out what that central question was? And then how did you, like, just sort of mechanically, like, go go about the process of then proposing this new structure to a publisher and, and then set about doing your research for the book? So I, uh, I knew that it was most likely going to need to be an independent publisher, like somebody who would work with quirky or unusual structures or hybrid structures. Um, and I had the fabulous opportunity to work with the same publisher that had published my short fiction, um, Mona at Mother Tongue Publishing. So that she had been, um, you know, off to the side, encouraging me to collect the stories that I was uh, sharing on social media about my father. And I sort of kept saying to her, like, I am working on a memoir, but the stories that I share on social media are not the stories that you'll see in a memoir because, um, you know, my father's a very funny person. He's got a great sense of humor, but there are a lot of things to cover in the uh, experience that we lived through together as a trio of people that were dealing with um, a host of illnesses and cultural beliefs and expectations on ourselves and on each other. So um I, once I realized that the tarot structure was going to be the one that I used, I reached out to her and she was immediately interested. So I, uh, she gave me a deadline and I started working on it, trying to figure out if I could actually make it a coherent um, memoir and figure out how to weave in those things that I didn't want to like overwhelm the story with fortune tellers or stories of um, 
things that we've done that way, but I wanted it to be there as the, the guiding sort of uh, through line of this idea of fate versus free will. Hmm. And then how did you go about doing research? Because a lot of what's in the book is your memories. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so did you say interview your parents or interview family members? Um, and, and how did you go about creating that kind of bigger context for what was happening? So I interviewed my father a lot and also my aunts who are much um, better storytellers than my father. You know, my father would just sort of say yes, no, oh, who can remember Mm. such a thing? Um, And then I had years of journals, years of taking notes and and, uh, writing in a journal. And then for the stuff that happened back when I was in Italy, I would sometimes ask my father, do you remember this? And you know, memory is so unreliable and we remembered things differently, but occasionally, you know, things would come up. Even after the memoir was out, I would find out some detail that I would think, oh, I wish wish I'd known that before. Like, and it just, um, it's an interesting thing. I think the process of interviewing people, because you almost, especially when it's family, when you go in with the direct question, there's always tension and people don't necessarily want to answer. Uh, and especially if they know you're working on a memoir, which my father knew. Um, and my aunts just started saying things to me like, um, why do you want to know? <laughs> so <laughs> I, had to, I had to say, like, do you remember that Christmas that, um, you know, our relatives from Montreal came? And then they'd be like, oh, you mean the Christmas that your mother had a meltdown and threw everybody out of the house? And I'd be like, yeah. Did she make lasagna? <laughs> And it was very, it was a bit underhanded of me, but they were like, did she make lasagna? I'll tell you what she did. She she threw a fit. (laughs) She took everybody's coats out of the closet and threw them out into the snow and forced us outside. We were trying to reason with her. And I would just be like, keep talking. I'm getting it all down. So, um, you know, and I did, um, you know, I couldn't ask my mother because my mother is a very unreliable memory. And, um, There were times that I had to recognize that she, I'm not in contact with her, but I'm also, when I was a child, she would tell me things that I absolutely believed and then found out weren't true. So her um, memory is just completely, um, you know, it's, it's not that it's not authentic, it's her memory, but she's got all kinds of things that she is struggling with, with her psychosis. So I wasn't able to ask her for permission. And then with my dad, I asked for permission and occasionally he would say no. And then I would still try to get around that. I would still sort of say, uh, how about this? So, you know, at one point, um, my dad paid off uh, all of his father's debts. And my grandfather was uh, not great with money and he didn't like to work, but he had three hardworking children. And nobody wants that to come out about their father. And I understand that, but it's something that's been a problem for my dad his whole life. So I'd say is it okay if I mention that you paid off your father's debts? And he'd say, no. And then I'd say, um, you know, I'd wait a week and I'd say, do you think it's all right if I mention that um, when you went to Switzerland and you had that injury where you lost the two tips of your fingers, that you kept sending your money home and you paid for the addition on the house and you also had to clear some of, um, you know, Nando's uh, not working time? And he'd say, well... And I'd say, that's a yes, that's enough, you know, (laughs) I didn't get a no, so that's enough. Um, And then there were moments that I really, you know, I just, I thought, I don't really feel comfortable revealing this. Uh, My father looks too naive, or um, I don't want anybody to think that I'm doing this intentionally um, to cause harm. I just... You know, I knew that on my mother's side of the family, we had three generations of mental illness. There was my mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother. And I just thought, you know, how how am I going to reveal that? And I, and I only didn't worry about revealing my grandmother, my maternal grandmother's cruelty, because I just thought it was breathtaking. It was, there were depths to it that I still am working through and trying to understand and, and, um, I'll never know, you know, because nobody was able to diagnose back then. Was she a sociopath? Was what was happening there? And um, but to me, it just I sort of felt like I'm not trying to intention. My intention is not to cause any harm. 
So I sometimes when I was really getting, you know, stressed about it, I would ask my father for permission, or I would actually sit down and light a candle and ask my ancestors for permission and just say, I really don't. I don't believe in secrecy. Secrecy is one of the most harmful things I've ever encountered. It allows like toxic situations to flourish. It allows perpetrators of abuse to get away with it with other people. It allows like uh, dysfunctional organizations to continue to perpetuate their toxic behavior as well. So I just kind of said, I'm revealing this because I've been given this opportunity. I'm, you know, I'm probably, I'm the first in, uh, female in my family to have post-secondary education access. Uh, my grand, one of my grandparents, uh, one of my grandmothers knew how to write and the other one didn't. So this is the first time in our family uh, line that someone can say, here's the story. Here's all the stories I have about us and what happened to us and how we came to, how this came to happen, you know. Hmm. And then, so what happened when you had been writing for a period of time and then eventually when it came out, did you say give pieces to your father to look at before it was published? And then did, when, once the book came out, did your family read it? Did they react? How did all of that go for you? Right. So um, most of them, if any of them have read it, they haven't told me about it. My father hasn't and he won't. It's um, it's harder for him to read in English than in Italian. So um, when we had the launch, I remember asking him, here's the questions I'm going to ask you. Do you mind if I ask you about your attempts at self-injury or the suicide attempts? And, you know, I was so uh, I, I know that sounds like a heartless question, but it, I was so clueless that I had been working with this, this material, writing it, thinking about it, processing it, dealing with it in everyday life and reality for 30 years. And then I'm turning to this person and saying, by the way, at the launch, you're the special guest star. I'm going to interview you and ask you a few questions like, so how did you end up in an arranged marriage? And how about this? And he was you know, I knew he's such a charming person and a lovely person. I knew he'd be funny and he was, you know, he said, lucky you that I had an arranged marriage. Otherwise you wouldn't be here writing your book. And I thought, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um, but when I asked about the, uh, you know, his suicide attempts, he sort of looked at me like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, I didn't know you were this foolish. And he just said, no, no, you can't ask me about that. And I was like, okay, that was a, a moment where I had completely like not been thinking, you know, I just thought like, I could ask him to investigate like, the that point in his life and how he came out of it. And I thought, my father hasn't been given the opportunity that I have like to turn this chaos into something that's artful. He's stuck in that story. And he's, um, his neural pathways are still processing that story. Um, and shortly, I think, you know, the, the day or two days after the launch, my mother was uh, trying to break into my aunt's house again. And so the police were called and my dad had my memoir in his uh, glove compartment, pulled it out and said to the police, my daughter wrote a book about how terrible her mother is and everything in this book validates my existence. And I said to him, that's not quite the situation, but how great of you to say that to the police, you know? Um, yeah. I did experience with my father an essay that I wrote about him and our, well, an essay that I wrote about our breakdown in communication, someone translated into it into Italian for me. And I, you know, it had been probably six or seven years from the time I had written the essay and it had been published to this translation. So I really wasn't paying attention. And I gave it to him. I gave him the translation. And he called me and said, you put down the time I took my pills in there. And I thought, you know, I, because there's still sometimes a language barrier uh, between us, uh, which is unusual, but it's still there. Uh, I sort of thought, is he talking about the fact that he takes like 15 pills a day for his diabetes, his heart, his depression, his uh, hypertension? And I said, oh, you mean the pills you take every day? And he said, no, you put down when I took all my pills, like my suicide attempt. And I had a, I had, I felt that physical, like, uh, intake of breath and holding my breath and being like, oh my God, I didn't prepare him. But I, I thought I did. I thought I told him, I'm writing about this. I'm, I'm always writing about us. I'm processing what happened to us. 
um, because I talk about it all the time with him and I do take notes in front of him and I, um, I say, wait, stop. I need you to go back. I need you to say that again. Who was this person? How did they, how are they, um, family with us or stuff like that? So I made it very obvious that I was taking notes and I was always talking about it. And I would mention if something was being published, I would, you know, the plays that I did, I would send the reviews back home because I was doing them when I was in British Columbia. So I was always showing him that I was processing the story of the trauma that we'd lived through together. But that moment I had this like, you know, I had this like, I can't believe how thoughtless or cruel I was not to prepare him. And I just said, I'm really sorry. I will stop writing about us. I'll stop writing about you. I really don't want to hurt you. I'm sorry. And he said, you don't need my permission to do this. I think it's important that you're telling the truth. Other people might have gone through this too. He said, it's going to be, it's going to be okay. And I thought, oh, you know, it was just like, and I, I don't think I slept that night because I thought, I can't believe I just was like, do, 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 you know, when you're a writer. And I think this is also um, the way you think of things when you're sort of um, got your sort of those, um, you've got that tunnel like vision about I'm, I'm going to work on this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And this is how I want to approach it. And you don't remember that a non-writer, a person who exists in the world, living with their pain and their reality is looking at you like, why would you do this? Why would you tell people that don't know you about you? Like, this is absurd. You tell people that you're friends with you. Why would you tell strangers? And I, I think, you know, it's, it's just one of those areas where it made me very aware um, that particular instance that there were, uh, obviously, it's an incredible, um, almost like a buffer for me that my family doesn't read in English. Um, and the ones that do <laughs> haven't gotten back to me. So I think that the overall um, feeling that I got from them is that they want to support me, that they love me, care about me, and that they are horrified at what I do. I mean, um, you know, that article that went viral last week, the bad art friend, I'm the bad art daughter. And so they mm -hmm. look at me like um, this vulture who's just feasting on the carcass of suffering that we've been through. And they cannot translate. Like for me, I'm processing and I'm trying to turn something dreadful into something that I can at least walk away and say, well, I, I made order from chaos and I crafted something with this, this like thing that continues to plague me, this like event and this uh, experience and these like this domino effect that has hit my life, like, uh, you know, those, the tsunami of my mother's illness and all the things that were going to come with it. Um, for them, it's like, no, listen, you don't tell anybody that there's any problems. Um, sort of, you know, uh, uh, um, straighten your back, hold your head up high, go out into the world, let them think you're perfect. <laughs> that just doesn't mm -hmm. work for me, you know? Yeah. And, and so much of it is, is really about understanding the world, but also answering these big, bigger questions that so many of us have and are, and are so grateful to see you grappling with in the text too. So, you know, ultimately it is doing a great deal of good, even if it's got this sort of immediate um, impact on your family. Right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have um, writers that you were turning to as you were developing your craft who who were kind of achieving this in, in their work that helped you along when you perhaps came upon obstacles? Yes. I mean, uh, in the early, you know, in the early days of, of realizing that I might want to write creative nonfiction, I, I fell into the, the Holy Trinity for me was David Sedaris, Sarah Vowell and um, David Rakoff. They just really, and they wrote essays and I thought they did these, you know, brilliant job. Uh, they did a brilliant job of sort of connecting the universal story to their personal experience. And that's what I really wanted to figure out how to do. Um, there's so like, I think we're living in a golden age of memoir and creative nonfiction. So it's wonderful that this program exists. Um, 
at King's College. So I was reading Ariel Gore, Daisy Hernandez, Dominica Ruda. There's just, um, there's so many fabulous writers out there. I mean, I just, I, I really love uh, reading Ayelet Sabari's work, who's a close mm-hmm. friend, and Leonardo Carranza. Um, I just think they both write these incredibly beautiful sentences, lush prose, but also piercing. Um, and that that sort of like, I take my inspiration from reading other people. Joy Harjo, I remember her memoir meant a lot to me. So um, do you ever, I'm, I'm always curious how this works in, in real practice. Uh, you know, I haven't figured this out for myself yet, but I will read somebody that I find I'm incredibly inspired by. And then I want to like, be them, right. <laughs> you know, and, and right. imitate their writing. And maybe uh-huh. I'll engage sometimes in, in writing exercises that try to imitate that voice. But that's sort of uh-huh. as far as I've gone to really replicate what, what amazes me about their work. So are there things you do sort of craft-wise to, to achieve what those authors are achieving? Um, there are things I do craft-wise. I don't know that I ever get to the point where I achieve what they're achieving, but what I do find myself doing is I will read with a pencil and what happens is, and this is why I also tell my students to read, um, books or stories, whether it's fiction or nonfiction that are very similar to their experiences. I mean, for a long time, I used to think I do not want to read a memoir by someone who had a mentally ill mother because I'm worried that I'll you know, it'll be so good and I'll be intimidated and I won't figure out how to tell my story or my story will seem lesser than or whatever it was. I thought this is a concern, but it ended up being um, problematic. So I ended up running in the direction of writing, uh, wanting to read works written by people that were dealing with the same situation. And it was actually very comforting to then suddenly be like, oh, I'm not the only person whose mother tried to do this or who experienced this. And what I did um, after I would read it the first time and I would sort of, you know, dog ear or um, put a sticky note on the page where I thought this experience is very similar to something I went through, I would go back and say to myself, so here's a moment where um, in a memoir, I think it was uh, where a mother sort of loses control and and the uh, sequence is quite violent. And I thought, how did she masterfully do this so that I'm engaged and it's compelling. I get to the, you know, it's like a bit of a page turner and I, I want to be able to do this too. So I would think about the scene that I wanted to write and I would go back and read the scene that that person had written. And I would think, how can I make this work in my own story? So I would sort of go back and sometimes I would even write. Um, the reason I had the pencil was because I would write in the margin of the book and because something that was being said by that writer really twigged to remind me of something. So, um, uh, in Ariel Gore's memoir, um, I think it was Atlas of the Human Heart, she has a sequence where she's talking about, maybe it's a different one, but she's got a sequence where she's talking about being in a classroom and being taught the structure of the story and how it didn't work for her. And I thought, oh, can I use that? Can I use the fact that when I went to school, I really had a lot of difficulty trying to figure out how to work with structure because I was being given this very old... Um, didn't work for me template. So I started making notes on the side of her, on the side of the actual episode in her book. And then I just would, you know, put in a sticky note so that I could go back to it. And then if I had a day where I felt like I've got some time, I want to try to explore writing that scene, then I would write the scene. Um, And I would try to write it in two different ways. One as a summary, like, so I'm um, writing it as if I'm just thinking about this and reflecting on it. And I would also try to see if I had any, you know, moments of memory that were dialogue or being in the classroom and that moment that I experienced the humiliation by that teacher, then I would try to write that too. And then that would almost be like, um, that didn't necessarily end up in the memoir or anything else, but it was almost like flexing those muscles and reminding myself that some of the material that I want to write about someone is just a little bit further down the path than me and they're lighting the way with a lantern and I can use that to help me get there. Hmm. 
That's a really good way to think. I, I, I'm going to take that myself because, you know, it's so easy to get swept up, but not actually go back through the, the kind of mechanics of it and, and sort right. of break down what you need to do. Yeah. 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 Please do. I, I, it was like one of those things where I was like, I should have been doing this all along <laughs> You know, yeah. when I started doing it. I was like, ah, oh, you know, this is the way to, yeah. to teach myself how to do this because it really is your favorite writers who are going to teach you how to you know, more than like an instructor, your favorite writers are going to show you how to accomplish something. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So you've written short stories and fiction. Um, so I, I'm curious how, and, and and so your book of short stories to me felt like it was drawing on your life. Um, yes. Certainly yeah. <laughs> autobiographical in many ways. Um, but I am curious from a craft perspective, how you differentiate between writing fiction and nonfiction and, and sort of where they intersect and where they deviate from each other. Um, that's a great question, Julian. I think, uh, you know, there's some of the things that I felt like I couldn't approach in the memoir that I didn't want to go there, I guess, only because I didn't want to um, make my father too vulnerable or be too revealing or really like, um, cause a major rift there even if it was something that he was never going to read I had to live with myself so some of those uh, stories they're still with me they still you know I think those are things that haunt me and I really want to get them out but I don't think they're going to come out as nonfiction. I think they're going to come out as fiction because they're clearly things that I want to explore um, there's there's sort of these moments that I think um, you know I'm not an exhibitionist and I'm not a masochist it's just that there's something there that won't leave me alone. And I keep thinking about that moment or I keep thinking about that day or that experience. And can I um, weave it into a fiction story instead of a nonfiction piece? Often when I sit down to write something, it's, um, it's usually nonfiction that comes up because I'm still um, sort of in that headspace working on that uh, a lot, thinking about that a lot um, in the current writing that I'm doing right now as well. But um, there are things that I set aside and tell myself this story, this one's going to have to be fiction because I don't want to, I don't want to bring it into the, I don't want to explore it through nonfiction. I want to actually have, I think that sometimes there's a little more freedom in fiction to even get to, to still get to the truth of the matter. And um, that's what I think I'd like to give myself in some of these stories that I want to explore is the freedom to really change up the events a little bit and have a different outcome. And do you find that like when people read some of your fiction, then they start to ask you questions and want to know what's real and what's not? Or are you able to dodge that successfully? Uh, I think they always like, wonder about that. And I remember thinking uh, when I was still in school and I was about to submit a story, I thought, I remember a, a part that I wrote that I felt particularly like um, I've made this character quite cringy. And I remember thinking, oh, I, I really hope they don't think this is me. <laughs> but at the same time, I thought, well, it is an aspect of me because this is an aspect of I'm creating this character who's looking at this world, the world a certain way. Um, so I do think people ask, you know, and think those questions. And I just think, um, yeah, it's different. It's still different. You know, if I was really, if I was, some of the fiction, like it's, it's taken off from the real life spark that in, inspired it. But if it was just going to be similar to the, the actual story that happened, it doesn't necessarily mean there was a story there. It was just me running with a what if. And that's what I usually sort of say to my students, like when they're really struggling, because they're really, they're, you know, they're with me, they're 18, and they're doing intro to creative writing. And they're like, yeah, I'm, what do you mean write a story? And I'm like, write a story. Like, I'm not going to give you, it has to have an oak tree in it and a witch. No, I need you to come up with the story. And we do the what if, you know, I tell them we're going to take these big events, like weddings, funerals, prom, something that you've been to, and we're going to what if the situation. You went, mm. what if you broke your leg? Or what if you got into a car accident? What if, what if, what if? Now run with that. So that's sort of the the place I go with fiction, like what if uh, things had gone as terrible, terribly as they possibly could. And I start <laughs> right. from there, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that also allows for humor to come in too, 
at a certain level where real life may not be all that, you know, humorous at times. Um, exactly. You're able to inject. Yeah. Comedy. Yes. Yeah. Cause in real life, you're just having to cope and get through. And then with the, with the actual fictionalizing something, you can exaggerate things and make it really, you can really play up a, a lot of that for more fun, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, the other big craft thing I want to ask you about is your editing work. And I guess, you know, you're in an interesting position because you've published so much in anthologies and then you've now taken on this new anthology that's coming out um, and you're in the position of editing other people's work. So how has this unfolded for you from a craft perspective, being a writer who's now in the position of editing um, and bringing that history of having worked with other editors in the past into that work? Um, you know, it's been a really wonderful experience. The, the you know, I, I really appreciate editors. I really appreciate the work that they do. You know, you always need that second um, person who's going to read and give you feedback and let you know those areas that you're not noticing that something's not clear or coherent. And I've had some wonderful experiences with editors and I've also had experiences where, um, you know, I was incredibly frustrated because what I was trying to do just didn't seem to fit or work. Um, more so like years and years ago in the last five or six years, I've had so many great experiences. And, um, with tongues, Leonardo was working with an idea, uh, with a group of people wanting to explore, you know, grammar and, uh, writing and, the sort of how we approach writing and, and how we teach writing and what happens when people want to be writers and they may be shamed about their grammar. And uh, Ayelet and I had always talked about language. We were always sort of interested in essays that were about language. We always found ourselves gravitated to, gravitating towards that topic, plus um, either reading it or sometimes mentioning it in our own writing, being obsessed with sort of communication and bridging that distance. And, uh, at some point, the three of us were um, together thinking we're going to work on this. And Ayelet had said, it's one book. It's a book about language. And we made this sort of dream list. We had tons of people that we wanted to approach more than we could actually approach. And um, we were we had a specific period of time and we approached Book Hug. And so we knew that we can do just like a random call for submissions because that would have been great. You can always find some gems that way. But we had like only so much time and our busy lives on top of it. So we, um, you know, it worked, it worked incredibly well. Like I, I expected, I think we all expected there was going to be more attention than there was, but what we did was we had about six authors each that we each worked with and we corresponded with, and we were the first person to edit their work. And then we would pass it on to the second editor and then the third editor, and then it would come back to the first editor. The edit, that, that would clean up all the comments and make sure there was some coherence to it before they sent it back to the writer. And then we did that, I think, three or four times with some pieces and sometimes more. So each of us read all of the submissions about and, and gave feedback on them about three times. But it And it sounds like a lot. And at times I remember thinking, oh, my God, I have four essays to comment on, plus I need to get through marking, you know, about 130 papers so it was a lot but it still somehow worked out like there was always a flow um they're incredibly hardworking and generous uh and uh gifted writers and editors themselves so i just i really felt like i was being carried along by this incredible wave of this opportunity to work on something that I always use the word obsessed, but I know Leonardo and Ayala don't like that word, but I, uh, <laughs> it's a subject that we're, we're all passionate about how, um, you know, how language influences the way we approach something and how, um, you know, we're, we're writing in English because that's the lingua franca of the business world because of colonial, colonialism and uh, what's happened. So, but I, you know, I've always found myself drawn to stories about like language extinction or, um, the elitism in language because I don't speak Italian, proper Italian, but a dialect. So I've always been sort of fascinated by it. And um, it's something that's always fascinated Leonardo and Ayelet as well. So the experience of editing other people 
I went in with my, um, you know, I thought about my best experiences and I thought the goal as an editor, I think, should always be to try and figure out what the writer is trying to get across and to ensure that they've done that with as much clarity and comprehension and compassionate support that you can give them as possible instead of like me trying to overwhelm the writer with my ideas my um, feedback should only be to augment what the writer is trying to do so that um, you know often I'm, when i'm giving feedback for the students or even in this editing in this pro project it was you know, usually the feedback is, you know, you think you've been obvious, but you've actually been obscure. So you need to be a little more obvious. You can't just leave this as a hint because I'm not getting it. And if three editors working on this um, anthology are telling you, I don't see it, you can pretty much be assured that it's not there and you need to make it more obvious or something like that. So we were always working with the idea that we wanted to uh, support the, and so we never, we didn't tell them what we wanted them to write about. We just said, we're working on this anthology about language. Would you be interested in participating? We'd love for you to participate. And with a few people, I think, you know, I, I would approach them and say, uh, you know, you said something really interesting about italicizing your um, write, writing in another language and italicizing that in a book and how that could look like othering. Would you write a piece about that? So we approached uh, Rebecca about that. So, and she said yes. So it was just a really, you know, it was, it's a, it was a dream project. Like things fell into place like nothing I've ever experienced before, hmm. in terms of the people we approached saying yes, um, them sending us the work, the work coming together, um, you know, and uh, coming together during a pandemic. It was a real, it was a wonderful distraction during a difficult time for sure. No kidding. I'm really looking forward to it, actually, because I'm fascinated by these ideas, too. So I'm really, really Great. excited about. Yeah. Um, what are you working on now? I'm actually working on a collection of essays. So I have a bunch of essays that I've been writing over the years. And now I'm just trying to write like a few more to sort of fill out this collection uh, called The Tattletale Heart. So a, a lot of exploring what it is to tell the truth um, and what that what that does for a person, I guess, for the writer and for the family and, and why I think it matters, like, especially in the wake of, you know, when we live in a world where people talk about alternative facts and things like that, our truths matter, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, this is so exciting to talk to you. I feel like I, you know, I'm one of your students and I've benefited so much from this chat. I know you also have some tips, not just for me, but for all of our listeners, uh, and that they have to do with humor, which is, I think, a nice way to finish. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you. I've really appreciated this. So I think um, I collected five tips that I thought were the best sort of uh, considerations that I could give for inserting comedy or working with comedy, adding comedy to some writing. Um, there is, you know, there's that saying that comedy is tragedy plus time, and it's a cliche, but I know that um, sometimes you can't, like it's too soon to work with the material or it's uh, too difficult. So never, I don't, I don't want anybody to pressure themselves into doing this, but um, some things that I think about when I think about adding comedy and I've you know, I, I, someone once asked me if I just, if it comes easy to me, and I thought nothing comes easy to me except, you know, sleeping when I'm tired or eating when I'm hungry. But um, the process, making, um, sort of being aware of your process and making peace with your process is so incredibly important as a writer. So if people want to add comedy, these are my five, five tips. So the first one, tip number one, consider characters. So who is the reader going to identify with in that situation? And uh, why would they identify with that character? And is it the narrator, the observer? And if not, who's the funniest relative or friend? And you want to follow that person around the scene. You want to um, be with them. And they might not be the most, they might not be the obviously funny character. So it might not be the person who's cracking jokes at dinner. But if, that's, if there's that person who's sitting in the corner sort of complaining about 
how you brought a terrible dip to the gathering after the funeral and it gave them heartburn. That's the person <laughs> you want to follow. Or, you know, it could be um, the character that eats their corn on the cob one niblet at a time. <laughs> so you're just, you're thinking first characters. Uh, the second, consider the situation. So what's unusual or absurd about the situation? And does that need amplifying? If it's already absurd, you probably don't need to do any kind of amplification, but there's something that's so familiar to us about unhappy situations or friendships or relationships, family functions, and the familiar is funny for everybody. So you want to sort of think about, you know, people cry at weddings and they laugh at funerals. So maybe examine why this happens or doesn't happen with the people that you're writing about. So situations. The third tip is consider patterns in oral story storytelling. So how might you tell this story to a friend if you wanted to make them laugh? And this is the sort of, um, you know, wait until you hear this approach. Like uh, when you listen to stand up comedians who tell stories, they're sort of important to watch and listen to because they have a real rhythm to the story to the reveal. And there's that pattern, the setup and the punchline. And you can do that reveal the comic reveal in setting up the prose, setting up the scene, setting up the characters, you establish everything. And then you want to sort of take it down in one line, sort of similar to a punchline, or two lines, like one or two sentences, you don't want to go on and on trying to make it funny. It's usually in one sentence, um, unless you're specifically trying to write like a comedic memoir, or you're writing satire or something. The fourth tip, look for the commonality factor. So we're not that different, even though, you know, our egos might tell us that we are, but at our core, we all are operating with the same fears and insecurities. And um, we've all got that like fear of not belonging or uh, the fear of missing out or feeling insecure, unless you're a sociopath or a psychopath. So that is something that you can actually work with, like that fear of being alone or feeling abandoned or, the fact that everyone desires some level of success or comfort. Um, if you can find that common element, that common factor, and maybe sort of go in and address that, you will then connect with the reader. So let's say like a situation that we've all experienced, like a job interview, we've all had a bad one. That could be something that would be a very entertaining sort of thing to add to a story. Like if it's happening in, in the time that um, the story is unfolding, that gives us a little bit of comic relief in that moment. And then the fifth tip, I think, is um, insert, consider inserting that comedy in dialogue or through the thought commentary that you're going to have. So, you know, people say really odd, unusual things during stressful times, or, you know, you can tell even these days listening, uh, the, the half the conversation that you'll hear that's private from a cell phone conversation is bizarre. Like people say, the wildest things out in public now that I think, well, wow, we've really like, there's no censor anymore. So those are sort of moments that you can take away, like something that someone said, or I, um, my approach is to think, you know, I offer like my thought as a narrator, um, what I'm really thinking while the situation is unfolding or directly after it's unfolded or even years later, as I think back on it. So that you're basically offering your reflection as you craft that into the story. And that I think is, you know, you're sort of sharing, giving them that moment that allows them to pause and allows them to breathe and gives them some levity so that it's not just like overwhelming them with stress because even um, difficult situations have their moments of humor, not all of them. So it's not something that I feel people should force, but I think if they're looking for those moments, then they can approach them through characters and situations, dialogue and the rhythm of the language and the, the common factor of what we all experience. Hmm, thank you. These are fantastic tips. And, you know, even, uh, you know, if, if many of our listeners are going to really appreciate them because, you know, comedic writing can be real challenge but I do too I, I yearn to be a funny writer I'm such a serious overthinker sometimes so it's really helpful to think from that perspective uh, it's much appreciated yeah oh I'm so glad yeah I think I think it's possible I think it's it's really it's the formula that I wanted when I was younger I wanted somebody to tell me how to do it and I think you just need that person who's going to break it down when they've seen it mm -hmm. and say it's like this this is where you can find it and then we can mm -hmm. all get there together well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Femia. It's just 
been such a lovely and and wonderful chat for me because these are all things I think about all the time and rarely have an opportunity to talk about so you've totally made my day my week (laughs) my month it's really really great thank that's lovely Jillian thank you so much I really appreciate it this um, invitation was really uh, wonderful so thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me I really appreciate it If you're interested in writing nonfiction, the University of King's College MFA in Creative Nonfiction might be for you. Find out more at ukings.ca/mfa. And if you'd like to hear more book-related conversations, check out Bookings, the podcast of our friends at the King's Co-op Bookstore. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Euphemia Fantetti for talking to us. Her latest book. My Father, Fortune Tellers, and Me, a memoir, is available from Mother Tongue Press. Also look for her edited volume, Tongues, on Longing and Belonging Through Language, available from Book Hug Press. Further reading is produced by the University of King's College MFA program in creative nonfiction. Our editor is Samantha Hepperly, music by Pete Johnston, graphics by Mike Smith. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.